Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys Podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys Podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe on your favorite podcast provider and give us favorable reviews. Our guest today is Lyman Stone, who joins us from Hong Kong. Lyman, you wear a number of different hats. I have I have a bio here for you, which is a little bit old, but I, I like it, so I'm going to read it, and then you can tell me what needs to be updated. It says that you are a global cotton economist, migration blogger, proud Kentuckian, advisor at Demographic Intelligence, and senior contributor at The Federalist. Yeah, a little bit dated, but but includes a lot of things that are still true. I'm no longer a cotton economist for USDA, so that's a change. Um, right. uh, now I'm a now I uh, essentially do demographic analysis for a number of different groups, like American Enterprise Institute, Institute for Family Studies, and a few others. And Puerto Rico, <laughs> yes, and Puerto Rico. Uh, okay, so obviously you've done a lot of work on demographics and birth rates, and you know things that impact family structure and so forth. We want to talk about that. But before we get into that, since you are local in Hong Kong, there recently has been a big issue in Hong Kong with uh, some proposed legislation. There were huge protests and uh, that got withdrawn. So I, I just want I know you're not an expert in this, but I thought we could talk about that a little bit. So for some of our listeners, you probably have a vague impression that, you know, Hong Kong used to be run by the British, and then it was turned back over to China about 20 years ago. But it has some sort of special relationship with China, but people might not be quite clear on the details. So what 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 is actually the, the relationship of Hong Kong vis-a-vis mainland China? So uh, you summarized it fairly well, right? So the, the British stole Hong Kong by force in the 1840s. And then they legalized it through a series of treaties that were forced on China at gunpoint. And then in 1997, those treaties finally expired and China was a bit too big to uh, force at gunpoint anymore. So the Brits had to hand Hong Kong back. And in the process of doing that, they negotiated this handover arrangement um, that would give Hong Kong a, a basic law, a kind of constitution, and regulate the relationship between Hong Kong and Beijing, at least for 50 years after the handover. So the handover was 1997. So from 1997 until 2047, there is this unique window of time where Hong Kong is part of China, but is governed under a different system. So this gives rise to this phrase we hear a lot in China, one country, two systems, right? So it's all China, but there's the mainland system and there's the Hong Kong system. So essentially what that means is that mainland China, Beijing is ultimately in charge, but they face some constraints, some rules uh, about what they can do in Hong Kong. Now, this might sound weird uh, that there's a government that has these extra rules imposed on what it can do, but it's worth noting that this is essentially just what it means to have a constitution in any society, right? So we have a government in the U.S., there are certain things it's not allowed to do because there's a constitution. It's just that 
many countries are just not used to having any restraint on government. Particularly if you're a communist government. Particularly if you are communist China, it's uncomfortable to have any restraint on the authority of the state, right? So yeah, you've got this situation, but what this means is that it's actually a really awkward situation, right? Because essentially, China is not allowed to change any domestic policy of Hong Kong for 50 years. Well, but that also means that locals can't really change that much because Beijing does have some veto powers. So the, the, the special autonomous region is kind of locked in this weird political stasis where there's liberalism. Uh, to some extent, but there's not really democracy, right? The franchise is not very broad and the election system is, well, it's it's really not even an approximation of, of democratic. Um, and that's, of course, because the British colonial system never really set up a democracy here. Let me ask about that, because that's something I was a little confused about. So they have a legislature there. They have elections. There are different parties. And when I was doing my research on Wikipedia, you know, most of the parties are listed as being pro-Beijing or pro-democracy, uh, so, something like that. And I should also say in the most recent election, it looked like the pro-Beijing parties won a majority of the of the seats, right? Which seemed a little odd to me as, you know, as an American. So, I mean, I, you know, how does that, how does that work in practice? Are, are the elections like real elections? There's real people voting. However, they make the electoral college look like direct democracy. That is, there are a lot of layers. It's kind of like an onion. You don't just cast a vote and that person wins. The districts are very unevenly sized, kind of arbitrary, not frequently updated. The franchise is not very wide. Uh, I'll be honest, I don't know all the technical rules, but my understanding is that a large number of adults are, practically speaking, not enfranchised. Sorry, I should say a large number of adult uh, citizens in Hong Kong. So you've got a, a more limited franchise, and then you have an electoral system that is just full of what we would call rotten boroughs, right? Constituencies that are just way too small, um, or some that are way too big. Uh, and then they have this indirect election system where you sort of elect people who go on to the next level, who elect people, um, which provides opportunities at every step for influence peddling, horse trading. Um, and frankly, the concern is uh, intimidation, particularly by our lovely neighbors across the border. So essentially, you get a system where people don't really feel like they have any voice um, because there are so many layers between them and the final decision-making bodies, and then even those decision-making bodies, it's not really totally clear what authorities they even have, given this sort of status quo arrangement in Beijing's constant searching for ways to integrate Hong Kong without violating that agreement. So uh, there is a kind of democracy, uh, but it's woefully incomplete. And it's certainly not enough to satisfy the desires of a population that's really considers itself modern, developed, and liberal. And so the recent controversy was over uh, some uh, a proposed law on extradition. I gather right now, Hong Kong has its own separate court system, criminal justice system, uh, which probably more approximates democratic or Western standards they actually have a large number of uh, expatriate judges, uh, like some other countries like Botswana, where they actually bring in judges from other countries, essentially, particularly from Britain. Um, and the, the legal code is extraordinarily similar to the legal code in Britain, 
um, as far as domestic law is concerned. Right. And I assume just because of the controversy of the law that if you are wanted for a crime in mainland China, that there are limits and you're in Hong Kong, that they're not just going to turn you over. There's limits to the extradition somehow that this bill was going to going to change. Currently, there's essentially no extradition. So if you're wanted for a heinous crime in China and you get to Hong Kong, you're basically free. There's maybe a few exceptions, but um, legally speaking, you're basically, you're free. You're out the door, which it's understandable that China would be frustrated by that, that there's this part of their country that's, well, quite literally a sanctuary city. There are some classes of people who are notoriously flagrant offenders. For example, Christian missionaries go into China, break a bunch of laws, then they go back to Hong Kong where you can't touch them. Now, there's other examples too, um, but so so China has a kind of understandable frustration here. Um, but of course, what they would like is to say, look, if we convict someone of a serious crime in China, so in this case, a crime with a jail sentence of over seven years, then uh, Hong Kong should agree to extradite that person back to China. Well, the problem with that is that Hong Kongers don't necessarily trust the court process in the mainland. Um, and moreover, the things that can get you more than seven years uh, in mainland China are quite numerous. For example, just during this protest, it was making the rounds that somebody who wrote some gay erotic fiction in China was sentenced to 10 years in prison um, just a few weeks ago. And so they're thinking, well, if that gets you 10, (laughs) this standard for serious crimes is rather low. Yeah, Ed James better stay away. Um, actually, just just as an aside, you talked about the like sanctuary city aspect of it. In some European countries and in Latin America, there used to be a tradition where the uh, universities, the colleges, functioned as kind of like the there was no extradition from there. The police or whatever couldn't come on, even if someone had robbed a bank or something. So that kind of like a, a, a weird parallel to this in a way where in, in a similar sort of, you know, grew out of, I think, me- medieval practice of autonomy for the universities and whatnot. But it did also get exploited sometimes. I think Castro, you know, during his early re- revolutionary days used to hide out in universities because they couldn't they couldn't get him. Hmm. But um, that seems like bad policy. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't think it exists anymore. It was one of the many traditional evolutions uh, that, you know, might not be what a rational planner, if they were designing the whole system, would come up with. But anyway, so this, obviously, so this law was put forward. Uh, people were concerned about it. But given that there were a majority of pro-Beijing party legislators, oh, so yeah. Even, so the situation in the legislature is actually even odder than that. Historically, It's been divided between what we would call pro-Beijing versus you call it pro-democracy or simply like Beijing skeptical uh, legislators. Um, But now the opposition is actually divided. Mm -hmm. You actually have two different pieces of the opposition. You have sort of the pro-democracy element, which actually by and large wants to be part of China. They just want an exceptional position for Hong Kong within China. And then you get this other movement that you that usually goes by the term localism, the localist opposition. They tend to be democratic, but they tend to also have as an objective preventing the integration of Hong Kong into China. Um, at the extreme end, you get a very, very tiny, really politically negligible segment um, who support independence for Hong Kong. I only mention them because they are politically negligible, except that the Chinese government keeps giving them free press 
or the Hong Kong government keeps giving them free press by arresting them. There's like eight of them, but they're always in the news. You actually have this divided opposition, which is this is actually given the sort of the pro Beijing element, um, a hugely outsized voice in the legislature because the opposition vote is split. Um, and it's not a, you know, it's not a proportional representation system or anything like that. So your, your older opposition tends to be your sort of democracy within China group and your younger, more radical opposition tends to not be as committed to the 1997 status quo uh, agreement. They don't really like the idea of living their entire life in political stasis only to have it thrown into chaos in 2047. They want to seize control of their political conditions now. So this actually has led to a lot of instability in Hong Kong for a number of years. Basically, these young activists trying to use various tools, democracy and direct action on the street to make themselves heard, to push for democracy, to push for Hong Kong local control, which often means restrictions on immigration from the mainland. So you get this strange thing where the very progressive position in Hong Kong is to restrict immigration of uh, Chinese people. Uh, because they would be more likely to support full integration. Right, exactly. Um, it's sort of a backdoor integration. So you get this more radical younger group that that just isn't okay with sitting on their hands for 20 years, that feels like they have a right to steer the ship of state in Hong Kong. And there have been a number of protests by this group, uh, and most of them have have kind of been dead ends. Um, they've gotten a lot of street action, enthusiasm, uh, big on social media, and they fail to get their policy goals. The only place they've really had success is in trying to limit cross-border traffic from the mainland. Which brings us to this present issue. The extradition bill was a very clear issue. The problem is that the localists and the democratic groups, sometimes what they wanted was nebulous, right? It's like, what do you, what do you actually want? What does a localist vision look like in 2047? What is it you hope to get? Well, it's hard to explain. It's hard to articulate. And also the Democratic and the localist groups had different visions. But on the extradition bill, it was very simple what the opposition wanted. No, don't pass it, right? Localists could agree on that. Democrats could agree on that. And so you get this sort of, first, the sort of conventional opposition spent a few months sort of trying to say, hey, let's slow this down. Let's discuss this. Let's let's try and have some reasonable consultations about this. But the government essentially said, nope, we're doing it. As it is, we are, we are plowing ahead. We have the votes. You're not going to stop us. So then the, the traditional opposition basically didn't see a path forward for stopping it. And so the localist opposition, right, this younger crowd kind of stepped up and said, well, then we're going to march, right? So they had this first march while the discussion of the bill was supposed to happen, and they were able to shut down the Legislative Council building. So then the vote had to be postponed, and then they did this huge weekend march that had a million people, which was way more than the government expected. The government did not realize that there was that much public opposition. Yeah, the, um, and the total population of Hong Kong is, is what, like eight, seven eight million? Seven, yeah. Seven and a half. Many of those, of course, are elderly people um, who are not out marching, both because they're more politically pro-Beijing and because they can't walk. And then, of course, also uh, children. And then also, you know, a lot of foreigners who generally are not participating in a lot of these things. So when you actually get to sort of the, the prime age 
electorate who who might have been marching, you're probably only talking four or five million people, um, of whom a billion of them actually came out and marched. And that kind of was a wake-up call to the government. So they said, okay, we're going to do some postponements. We're going to talk about this. We'll apologize. And then the next Sunday, this was last Sunday, two million people came out and marched, which really freaked the government out. So now Carrie Lam, the chief executive, has come out and made public apology, done these public statements, definitely adopted a gentler tone towards the media and towards the localist opposition. And now the the bill has been indefinitely tabled, which is not good enough as far as the opposition is concerned, right? They want the government to commit to never passing that bill. The problem is that committing to never passing that bill is committing to resisting a full handover to China in 2047, right? Because in 2047, China has the right to just change everything. So for the government to say, well, we're never going to do this is basically to say, we're going to set up a situation where China, you know, assumes direct forceful control on January 1st, 2047. Right. Um, and, and just as a matter of politics, not only in Hong Kong or China, but anywhere, you can never credibly promise to, to never pass a bill, you know, because I mean, well, in practice, they could at least publicly say it is no longer under consideration Right. What they basically said is it's tabled and we're going to have further discussions before we bring it up again. When what the opposition wants to hear is, okay, we recognize this is dead. Now, beyond that, the opposition on some level recognizes that that's probably politically a challenging thing to do. So they're going for a more credible demand, which is simply that the current chief executive, who's seen as very pro-Beijing, Carrie Lam, should resign. This is not unprecedented. A previous chief executive of Hong Kong's uh, resigned in response to some street action in, I believe, 2003. So this is not unprecedented. But uh, but so far, Carrie Lam has made no no sign of uh, resigning. And even if she did, uh, it wouldn't necessarily change who's in power. Although it would, of course, be a very big signal of the power of particularly the localist opposition. But in this case, you know, you don't get 2 million people in the street just from, you know, young folks out having their occupation, right? right? That only happens if your traditional opposition showed up as well. And also if you actually were able to have some persuasive reach across the aisle. And that's the thing is the extradition issue was so simple, so clear cut that it mobilized a lot of people who would normally be quite conservative. And conservative in Hong Kong tends to mean more probation. So you get institutions that previously have encouraged sort of a conciliatory approach to Beijing, particularly a lot of Christian churches that have done so, suddenly coming out and saying, yeah, we got to march. This is not okay. Extradition is too far. And the government just wasn't prepared for that. They had not read the tea leaves correctly. I wanted to ask you sort of a broader geopolitical question about this. Uh, we're, you know, we're in a time where there, we have rising tensions with China. Is this something, uh, I mean, first off, that Americans should be concerned about beyond the humanitarian issues and here and, you know, the plight of the people in Hong Kong? Is this something that we should be monitoring that there's, that there could be sort of a tinderbox effect that something bigger, broader, uh, may transpire between the United States and China over the United States taking some interest in what happens here in Hong Kong? I mean, what happens in Hong Kong is significant for the wider strategic picture in Asia, particularly because politics in Hong Kong and Taiwan tend to be a bit symbiotic. 
Um, that is, these two places, Hong Kong and Taiwan, they watch each other very closely. A lot of the politicians know each other. They have a lot of history together. So we actually already have seen politics in Taiwan have taken a more anti-Beijing turn um, over the last few weeks. Um, even the KMT party, that is the more moderate party in Taiwan, has for the first time in a long time uh, had prominent politicians out there saying Taiwan will never accept one country, two systems, right? There's this term, which this is the KMT has been getting more and more sort of Beijing sympathetic for years. So it's interesting to see KMT politicians take a more anti-Beijing turn here. It's yeah, because the, the KMT being the, the Kumatang, the party of Chiang Kai-shek, who came over after they lost the, the civil war in 1949. Right. So it's the, the nationalist party that still asserts that they control mainland China and that Taiwan is the Republic of China. The, uh, the other party in Taiwan tends to say, actually, we don't need to be the Republic of China. We can just be a, an independent country called Taiwan, which is a whole different political <laughs> beast there. But the point is that this protest movement is shifting Taiwanese politics towards a uh, more anti-Beijing uh, position which is complicated because that can make cross-straits relations more tense, um, which then can mean that the risks of the U.S. being involved in another Taiwan Straits crisis is elevated, which on the one hand makes it sound like we kind of would want the Democrats, uh, the, the opposition in Hong Kong to lose, right? We'd, we'd want everything to stay quiet. But it's not that simple either, right? Because the more that Beijing has success, in crushing uh, civil society, in crushing any kind of legal, civil, or social opposition to them, the more success they have in implementing centralized control, the more they will continue to attempt to do so. You see this in Tibet, where the governor who pacified Tibet rather aggressively was then shuffled over to Xinjiang, where he's now pacifying the Uyghurs there through extraordinary means. Those methods are then starting to migrate over to a few other pro provinces like Shanxi and Gansu. You know, these, what happens in Hong Kong does have spillovers for the wider experience in China. And at the end of the day, the United States, for its security in East Asia, we kind of do need China to be gradually liberalizing and opening up and allowing dissent. Um, because if they don't, then we really can't count on any kind of soft power actually working uh, to create peace. Let's switch now to another topic, which is more the area uh, where you do work, which is on uh, demographics and family stuff. And, you know, you have done uh, some work. I think you were you known, I don't know if you would identify this way, but you kind of have a reputation as being a pro-natalist. Do you accept that term? And either way, you know, uh, can you just describe what is pro-natalism? Uh, I certainly accept the label pro-natalist. And I would say that pro-natalism, I mean, literally, it just means in favor of birth, right? Um, and what it means is simply the view that in our current society, we would all be well served, we would be better off, it would be a good idea if the government, civil society actors, you know, whatever, whoever you consider in charge of public affairs, were to encourage people to have more babies, right? So basically, if you think people ought to have more babies than they are currently having, 
then it would be reasonable to call yourself pronatalist. Now, there are distinctions here. Some people would say, well, pronatalism means uh, people who think that you should have, you know, 10 babies or something. And I don't believe that. I have a more moderate position. But essentially, it just means you think people should have more babies than they are right now. And I do think that. So I, I like I like babies. I uh, we have a couple. So why is this something that the government should be concerned with? Isn't this just something you know people can decide for themselves uh, whether they want to have kids and how many and mm-hmm. however it shakes out is how it shakes out. Yeah. So I think people should decide for themselves how many kids they want to have. If they want to have three kids, they should have three kids. If they want to have two kids, they should have two kids. And the convenient thing is we actually have a lot of surveys where we ask people, how many kids would you like to have? And most people say two or three, right? So the average is about 2.5. In practice, the average American woman who's in her childbearing years right now is likely to have about 1.7 or 1.8 kids, which is to say, the average American woman is likely to have about 0.7 fewer kids than she wants. Now, you could say, well, that just means that she wants other things better. This is revealed preferences, right? I'm an economist. I like this idea that the market sort of sorts things out. But this is a gross misreading of what, a, of what it means to reveal preferences, right? Revealed preferences are always conditional on the material circumstances in which the market occurs, right? So, if, uh, if the government were to announce that anyone who had a third child would have their head chopped off, we would not assume that that means that a decline in fertility to only having two kids means people don't want third kids, right? We would recognize this is the government threatening to chop people's heads off if they have a third child. Now, we don't have anything that severe in America, but we do, in fact, have very large government and other forces pushing against people's preferences. So you look at things like zoning, right? Land use rules of a variety of types that make housing far more expensive than it needs to be, particularly starter housing, right? For young families. You look at uh, things like occupational licensing that make uh, entry level and working class jobs much harder to get um, and therefore make it much harder for people to make themselves stable and marriageable particularly men. You can look at uh, the welfare programs that we have that have very large penalties if people get married, right? So uh, housing vouchers are probably the biggest example of this, where getting married routinely causes working class people to lose thousands of dollars of housing vouchers. The result, of course, is that working class people don't get married as much. Surprise. And of course, marriage is one of the most important causal factors of childbearing. Yes, people have kids out of wedlock too, but birth rates among married people are still four or five times as high as among unmarried people, and uh, and it is causal. Getting married makes you have babies. So we have a lot of policy factors that are actually sort of putting a thumb on the scale against having babies. Then we also, of course, have sort of cultural and Uh, social or civil factors weighing against it, changing attitudes, pressures from family, ideas about competitiveness and career advancement and how one times one's career and life and all these things. But the point is, it's very easy to look at all of this and recognize that it might be that what we're seeing is not a free market revealing people's true preferences. 
it might be that what we're seeing is a broken market revealing that people aren't getting the life they want, right? And we do, of course, know that once you control for basic financial status, that having children is strongly associated with greater happiness. We, and I've shown separately that um, a gap between people's ideal uh, childbearing and their actual childbearing is associated with less happiness. These are real issues that affect people's lives. I mean, talk to someone who wants to have kids who can't. They are sad. And I, and I think that this is a worthwhile thing for the government to inspect whether policies are rightly designed to enable people to have a life that is flourishing. So I want to talk about what are some of the policies that might be able to uh, affect that. But you have laid a lot of stress, I think, on you know, this discrepancy between how many kids people want or what their ideal is and how many they're actually having, which I think makes a lot of sense. So there are, though, some natalist folks who, you know, will talk about, well, you need to get the birth rate up because of, you know, broader macroeconomic factors uh, to, you know, shore up social security or, uh, you know, more young people in society, more innovative, you know, stuff like that. Do, do I take it that that's not really your chief concern here. It's more It's more about trying to structure things in a way that people can get what they want in terms of, of family size. I mean, I worry about the solvency of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, pensions, debt. I worry about declining dynamism. The evidence is in. Low birth rates and demographic change are driving the American economy and American governance into a very dark fiscal place. I buy that story. I believe it. It keeps me up at nights, right? But nobody has a baby for Social Security. Nobody's like, oh, well, Social Security really needs another worker. Let's make a baby, right? So those things are, they're they're really important for society on the whole, but they're not actually important to any member of society. So while they're sort of interesting for intellectuals to talk about, I actually don't think that they're really an argument for people to talk about. Um, and yes, I'm excluding intellectuals from the class of people. But uh, I, I think that really when we talk about why is pronatalism a good perspective, not just why is it efficient for society or why might it be necessary for society, but why is it good? Why is it right? Why is it in some sense ethical? To think in this way, to see this issue as a problem, to want to solve it. You can make efficiency arguments, you can make necessity arguments all day long. And at the end of the day, someone will just look at you and say, everything you say makes sense, but you know, it's gross. I just can't believe that people should have babies to become taxpayers to support old people. That's weird. So so yeah, I, I advance the argument about people's actual values and desires because um because I think it's what actually speaks to why this position is actually right, not just necessary. Ironically, I have to step away for a second to deal with a kid. So, Doug, you ask a question. All right. So you recently wrote a piece um, at The Atlantic called The Happiness Recession. And my takeaway from this, uh, you co-authored this with uh, W. Bradford Wilcox. And my takeaway from this was that the happiness is recession, recession is because people aren't getting it on enough. Uh, is that essentially uh, your point or was there a broader point? Uh, so there is a broader point. Obviously, uh, when people aren't having some, as much sex as they want, that's not awesome. Tends to make them not totally happy. 
Um, a little, but, maybe a little bitter. <laughs> maybe. Um, but actually, in, in that, in that uh, article, Brad and I looked at a number of different indicators of associational life, right? Life together. We looked at sex. We looked at marriage. We looked at time with friends. We looked at church attendance. We looked at a variety of indicators because what we were interested in is not just sex. What we're interested in is life together, right? We wanted to see is a decline in people's life together or the, the degree of togetherness in their life, is it pushing happiness down? And the answer we found was yes, that there has been a decline in happiness and it is pretty closely related to changes in associational life. Sex is the most, uh, uh, well, it's the sexiest kind of associational life to talk about, but it is just one kind at the end of the day. So our, our view, my view is not that if people just, you know, took some extra Viagra and knocked boots more frequently that the world would be a happier place. I mean, maybe, um, but, uh, but just that these are all symptoms in some sense. These are all sort of diagnostic criteria of, in fact, a broader trend, which is just the decline in associational life. Right. And, and Josiah made a, made a similar comment a moment ago about what the government can do about this. And, you know, I've been noticing uh, Elizabeth Warren is, is trying to make a name for herself by you know, sort of riffing on the, uh, the old line about there's an app for that. I've got a plan for that. So, sorry to interrupt, Good. but she did actually, someone, someone tweeted at her recently to Elizabeth Warren, can you help me with my love life? And she said, <laughs> you know, uh, DM me, I'll, I'll work on it or something. <laughs> so. so so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Elizabeth Warren can actually help you with your love life. But, but I would tend to think that the government doesn't really have much to help you with your love life or these other associational issues. What's the role of the government here? Can the government help help people build their social capital, help them build relationships, help build the family? What can the government do? Right. So that's a good question. Um, there's a long list of things that the government can do that will make a little bit of difference. And this is the irritating thing about this whole issue is that there's no one thing that the government can do that will make a big difference. There's a million things that will make a little difference, right? And there's probably probably quite a few things they can do to make the problems worse. Sure. Yes, absolutely. In fact, a lot of the things that the government could do to fix this problem are basically fix things they did in the past that created this problem, right? So I gave the example of uh, Section 8 housing vouchers earlier, but you can take another example with the earned income tax credit, right? The earned income tax credit is this lovely thing where we pay people to work. The, the government pays, pays people extra to work. Great. It encourages uh, labor force participation. It's uh, kind of helps get people off welfare, gets them involved in the uh, socially stabilizing institution of work. Wonderful. Great. And we make it extra generous for single moms with kids. And the more kids they have, the more generous we make it. Great. We're helping the neediest people, encouraging people to work. Wait, hold on. What are we actually doing here? Because it sounds like what we're actually doing is we are making the subsidy more and more generous for people if they aren't married, and we make it even more generous for the more kids they have. That is, we take moms who are not married, and the more kids they have, the more we tell them they should not be with those kids. And then if they get married, we take the benefit away. 
Now I've added up the total cost of all this, right? If you wanted to make the EITC marriage neutral, because right now it's not, right now it has a huge marriage penalty. If you wanted to make the EITC marriage neutral at current benefit levels per child, right? It would cost you something like 200 to 300 billion dollars a year. Now that's enormous, but that is a way of saying that we are currently passing on something like 200 to 300 billion dollars worth of incentive structures to working class women, especially telling them, don't get married. Don't do it. We'll take your benefits away. When you add in housing vouchers, when you add in food stamps, temporary assistance to needy families, uh, Medicaid, when you add in the, you know, hundred and something means tested programs that we have throughout the government, you might be looking at a trillion dollars a year in sort of implied anti-marriage incentives, right? Um, situations where basically if we made these programs marriage neutral at current benefit levels, it would cost that much. So what can the government do? <laughs> you can go line by line through every tax plan, every spending program, every means-tested program, and you can apply one simple rule. In no circumstance ever for any benefit or taxpayer should getting married ever cause your benefit to shrink or your tax bill to rise. Now, the result of this is that you would explicitly end up subsidizing marriage in many cases. You would have poor people who marry a rich person and you'd say, well, they should still get their benefit. And that seems crazy. At the same time, it's crazy to take people's benefits away when they get married. That's insane. If society doesn't want to pay for it after they get married, then we probably just aren't mature enough to have it, right? But at the end of the day, if you really want to fix these problems, you have to go through a lot of programs, you have to spend a whole lot of money, um, and you basically have to make a commitment to not punishing people for making good life choices. There's a whole other subset of this with assets. When we asset test government programs, right? We say, well, you can have this benefit as long as your savings aren't over a certain amount. In which case we're saying, well, we'd love to give you this, but you need to destroy all of your assets first. That's perverse. We shouldn't do that. So you've got a lot of these programs in the name of trying to control costs and in the name of trying to avoid paying benefits to people who don't really need them. We've actually created massive incentives for behaviors that people don't want, that we, we are essentially forcing people into uh, socially disadvantaged uh, behaviors. I don't know if you saw this piece, and I don't recall the author's name, but did you happen to see the recent piece in The Nation where uh, an author made the case that the way to undermine capitalism in America is actually to undermine the family? I think Mark said that a while ago. <laughs> I mean, that's the sort of your early stage Leninism, right? They they have this like radical anti-family thing where, you know, kids are raised by other people beside their parents. They make divorce super easy to get all this stuff. And of course, it's a total disaster. And so the Soviet Union had to like walk all this back after about five years. But uh, I mean, yeah, that's yes. The more you split up the family, the more dysfunctional the capitalist model of production will become. Um, because at the end of the day, you need transfers between the old 
the working, the young. You need resource pooling for humans to survive. In capitalism, where the unit of production is the household or the family, this works. Each unit has some workers, some non-workers. You have these built-in cross-subsidies. But the more atomized society becomes, the more we are not depending on our family unit, the more the idea of each person supporting themselves starts to become insane, right? How, how is a 12-year-old supposed to support themselves? Well, the answer, of course, is that the government needs to provide a massive package of benefits enabling the payments attached to that 12-year-old to fully support them, right? So, so the breakdown of the family does create these cases of need that serve as justifying cases for uh, expansive welfare programs. And then, of course, if those welfare programs are crappily designed or perhaps well-designed from a Marxist perspective, um, then they can lead to further family breakdown. Though I would emphasize when you've got something like Section 8 housing vouchers, what causes family breakdown is not that you paid for housing. It's that you paid for some housing, right? Paying for housing does not destroy that family. What destroys that family is telling the person, we won't pay for your housing if you're married, but if you get divorced, we will pay for it. That is what destroys that family. So I, I did want to ask finally about Hungary, because so they, as with many Eastern European countries, their birth rate is pretty low, uh, lower than the United States, certainly. And they have adopted a, what you might call as a, an all-out pro-natalist type of uh, policy to try and increase the birth rate, I think, among, you know, there's there's many parts of it, but among other things, I think if you have four kids in Hungary, you're exempt from all income tax for, for life and there's other there's other stuff. I, I know you've uh, you wrote an article looking at this about a year ago. What is your sense of, you know, is this really effective? It's empty propaganda. Empty propaganda. Okay. All right. Actually look at the spending the spending and, and the outlays on these programs. Um, Hungary has not had a massive boom in family spending, right? For every new program, they cut an old one, which, okay, I get it. You're, you know, you're trying to experiment with new things and maybe these new programs are better, but at the end of the day, it's not pronatalism. If you tell a family, well, when you no longer get the tax break, but we will give you a rental subsidy, right? That, how's that? What? Where's your expectation that that family is going to have more babies? Beyond that, certainly they've seen no fertility increase, to be clear. They've gotten nothing uh, for their efforts. Um, it's partly because they actually have not increased spending that much. To the extent that they have increased spending, it's, it's often been in these sort of creatively designed programs like this one where they were going to exempt income tax for the work of any woman who'd had, I forget if it was a third or a fourth child, which sounds like, oh, wow. Once you have your third or fourth child, all your future income is exempt from the income tax. Well, hold up. Once you have your third or fourth child, the opportunity cost of being in the workplace is not, it, it, it's, it's quite high. You have to now high, get childcare for those four children, right? So women who have lots of kids are your least likely people to enter the workforce, so it's not for the it's not for the household or the family. It's just for the it's for the woman's income, right? So they do these things where, or they they have this big housing program, right? Where oh, it gives you all these housing benefits. When you look at the rules, it's like only for certain new houses, right? Um, so you can't use it to like 
buy an existing house, only a new house, which sounds great, except that in post-Soviet countries with a declining population, you have a really old housing stock, right? There aren't that many new houses. So a lot of these programs that, that are happening are... They, they sound like they're so generous and they sound so big. And then you actually look at how they're structured and you realize that the real aim of them is not to increase births, but to subsidize the housing construction industry, right? The real aim of it isn't to increase births. It's to look like you're increasing births. And frankly, they were, all of these programs have also been passed through a, a deeply divisive, divisive political process in Hungary that has stimulated a wave of out-migration, particularly among young women. <laughs> You're not going to get more births if your political process gives you pronatalist policy at the price of all the young women leaving the country, right? So a key point about pronatalism is that it's not just the policies you implement, it's also how people feel about them. If people look at a policy, but they think it won't last, kids live a long time. They're in the house a long time. Parents aren't going to have that extra baby if they think your policy plan is only going to last two years, right? So I actually think Hungary is the, an interesting case of like how not to do pronatalism. It's, I think conservative pronatalists in America should stay away from the Hungarian example. Don't get within 10 feet of it. Look for better cases. Um, Latvia has done a better job uh, than Hungary has uh, with a broader set of policies with leave and family payments and uh, extra payments for second children, extra payments for third children, extra payments based on how many kids are in the house at once. They plainly double for married people, so there's no marriage penalty. They're, they're doing simple, straightforward cash for kids, and it works. It costs money, but it works. And if you're not willing to pay money, then you're not willing to have the extra babies because surprise kids are it's kids are expensive. They just are. All right. Well, uh, on that note, I think we will end it. Uh, Lyman, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. <laughs>